of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. All right, here we are back to gardening once again. And it looks like the lines are all full, so I won't give you that number again. We'll have one available for you pretty shortly, though. And, of course, you do know the number, 210-599-5555. But don't dial right this second because we're going to talk to Don and two Julies out there. And then, John, let's just keep growing here, Chris. Uh, Don's turn. Good morning, Don. Good morning, Bob. Hey, uh, I'm down here in Corpus Christi, and uh, I, I talked to you before about the Israeli melon. I yes, finally right. got, between me and the possums, I finally got to eat, eat one of them. <laughs> and, uh, the, the, uh, the question I want to ask you is, the, the seeds, how would I preserve the seeds? Should I, I, I take them, uh, and that, you know, they're dry. Should I put them in a jar and put them in a refrigerator, or what should I do what, to keep them? Yeah, what I do is I put them in a little colander or something and wash all the all the yeah, kind of yeah. And then once they're thoroughly dry, I rather than just put them in a jar, Don, I like to put them in a an envelope. Uh, just a little tiny card envelope or something like that. And, uh, you know, we get the little, little, uh, envelopes we put enclosure cards in that are maybe two inches by three inches. Uh, same sort of thing, uh, a jeweler would have the same sort of thing. Maybe they put uh, change in at the bank. A lot of different places to find them. But I, I just put them in a little paper envelope and then put that envelope down in a glass jar. I guess there's no reason you couldn't just put them in the jar. But if you look at my refrigerator, I've got two or three glass jars that have got about 15 packages in there to keep things, uh, just keep things separated. So, uh, um, yeah, putting them in the glass jar is the important part. I like putting them in a little paper envelope and then putting in the glass jar. But you put them in the refrigerator to keep them? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah, okay. It, it extends right. the life a great deal, not in the freezer, but just in your cool part of your refrigerator. All right. All right. Can you plant those things in the fall or not? Is really. How how long does it take them to mature? Um, in other words, you know, some some melons, some squash take up to 120 days, and in Corpus you might have that kind of time window. But of course, the further north you go, uh, the earlier we typically see some frost. And even without frost, when we start getting really chilly, melons really slow down. So it, it certainly wouldn't hurt to try a fall crop. I I probably would be planting the seeds for fall crop. I'd be planting about the middle of August. Middle of August. Okay. I thought maybe I'd try them. I think they've done pretty good in there, but I've eaten some there. really sweet and really good. So, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Nothing uh, to lose. I'll look forward to hearing from you how they do as a fall crop. Yes. Okay. Thanks, Bob. I appreciate it. Well, Enjoy your my show. pleasure. <laughs> Thank you, sir, so much. Appreciate it. All right, next up, and I don't know how to distinguish one from the other. We've got, uh, well, I guess uh, the first Julie will be the Julie is calling from Oklahoma. That'll do it. Uh, good morning, Julie. Good morning. How good are morning. you? I'm good, thank you. How about yourself? 
Okay. Just fine. Thank you. Beautiful. I love these cool mornings. Um, okay. Um, I have several questions. Okay. Um, what do we do about the yellow um, leaves that have just popped up on the tomatoes? And I know you've answered this a hundred times, and I I don't know. <laughs> well, a hundred anyway. one is not too many, and I'm sure we'll do it several times again. Um, any of your good non-toxic fungicides will help it is a fungus i like to try to prevent it as much as possible by sprinkling cornmeal around them on the ground at the time i plant but if it started in the plant you have several choices you can soak whole ground cornmeal in water which activates the trichoderma which is what's going to work at controlling the uh, this problem is called light so you can soak cornmeal you can use a little bit of uh uh, baking soda in water or potassium bicarbonate make it fairly dilute um, you can use any of these sprays that contain this uh, natural bacteria called bacillus subtilis s-u-b-t-i-l-i-s seems to be yes, I have pretty good yeah uh, any of those things okay. just use as a foliar spray and it's not going to affect the fruit at all so uh, don't worry about it. just go okay. right on picking and eating Okay, the second prince I've got that. I wrote it all down. So, Good. okay, what about black black spots on rubecchia? Is that the same thing, kind of? Um, rubecchia is they are susceptible to a lot of different fungal problems. I think it's largely because they have such a rough leaf that, uh, you know, with, with a really smooth leaf plant, the way a fungus gets started is the fungal spore lands in a drop of water on a leaf, and it, in effect, germinates, penetrates into the leaf, and that's how it gets started. Really smooth leaves, a lot of times they just wash off, but on a leaf as rough as a rudbeckia, um, it's real easy to get some different fungal disease started. Um, they are unsightly, but they don't really seem to spread and cause just a dieback of the whole plant. Uh, they, you can do a lot of preventing the corn water tea or actually liquid garlic, uh, is also a great fungus preventer. It works by stimulating so many beneficial fungi. The bad guys just don't have any place to take hold. But, uh, I would pretty much, uh, treat it the same way, but, uh, just like we spray the tomatoes uh, with seaweed and molasses to stop the spider mites from ever getting started, I think periodically a spray of that corn water tea is just a, just a good preventive measure. Okay. Okay. And um, I was going to ask you something Let's see about the corn water tea. Okay. And the other thing, along seems like in the winter at one point, I heard you say something about a Leland cypress that you didn't like the tree. But I have three of them, and they're sure. up against the house, and they're really they're for where they are, they're lovely, you yeah. know. But uh, all of a sudden, I have two that they. It looks like they're shedding the inside of. I don't know if you call them leaves, but anyway, leaves, um, needles, whatever you want to call them, needles. Okay, and but you know they're really tiny. Um, I, I mean the the length of them. Okay, and they're shedding that on the inside. Two of them are, and I don't know why that would happen all of a sudden. Well, it, it hasn't it, been that hot. Yeah, at I mean, what what yeah. you will find? How does the newer growth look? Does the outer growth growth on the limbs look good? Yes, yes, it does. The and, what? Um, what and happened? I've had them. They're 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 
you know, I don't know. They're above the house, so they're big, uh-huh. you know. Well, Leyland cypress is not a bad tree everywhere. It's just not real well adapted with our higher humidities, with some of the things they, in San Antonio and in the near hill country, uh, they seem to be more susceptible to some diseases like something called diplodia. They're susceptible to spider mites. They just have a lot of problems. In Oklahoma, they are most likely going to be just, you know, uh, perfectly good plant for you and the with any plant the purpose of a leaf is to absorb the sun's energy as the plants get thicker and thicker bigger and bigger the interior of the plant becomes shadier and shadier and the mm. plant we're we're giving it conscious thought which it doesn't have but chemically it's saying hmm i'm not getting any le- any light to these leaves they're not doing any good so let's just get rid of them i'm dehydrating i'm i'm trans Inspiring through them, and I'm not getting anything in return, so I'm just going to drop these interior leaves. And that will happen on everything mm. from a holly to a cypress to you name it. Um, and that's why people that plant, you know, big hedges, and then they find that they're getting a little bit bare in the base, and they want to know, you know, how they can get them to fill in down low again. And I have to tell them all to, you can do is just cut them way, way back to get more light. It's the reason the backside of a hedge that's up against a foundation is always going to look worse than the front side, but it's just simply a matter mm. of that part of the plant's not getting as much light. Well, uh, should I go in and maybe, tr- uh, you know, turn some of it out in the middle or just leave well, it? Well, unfortunately, Leyland Cypress doesn't lend itself real well to that. What you're probably okay, long-term going to okay. end up doing is planting a second tier in front of them. You're going to let them get tall. As you mentioned, they're already above the, uh, above the eaves, but you're going to drive yourself crazy trying to make the full plants that you started out with. But uh, okay. in front of it, whether it's Rebecca's, maybe it's uh, you know one of the salvias, maybe it's some different evergreen or something, but eventually you're just going to plant a second tier of plants in front of it because they're just going to get leggy at the base and the tops are going to stay pretty. All right. Okay. Well, listen, thank you so much for for answering those, and you have a great day. I sure appreciate it, and you do the same, Julie. Thank you. Okie doke. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Back to gardening and straight back to the phone lines. Let's talk to our Julie a little closer to home. Good morning, Julie. Hey, good morning, Bob. I have a question. I saw a big wasp. It's bigger than our ordinary wasp in the Uh area. And it looks like to me, because I was able to cut out to kill one yesterday because it chased me. It's about (laughs) an inch, more than an inch long, and it's really fat. And at first, it was only one, and it was attacking the visiting honeybees and the bumblebees that were on my flowers. Then yesterday, it brought a company or a family, and I don't know which which of the two that chased me yesterday and waited for me in my front door. So I got I got upset because it chased me. So I grabbed my ra- the rage spray for ants and roach, uh-huh. and patiently waited for them because <laughs> they, I know it was horrible day yesterday. I had to wait, and then uh, they 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 loved both of them loved my chocolate mint plant mm-hmm. and i waited patiently and finally i sprayed and i got one of them and then when that when i was able to paralyze the first one the one that escaped 
it came back, and I th- I think he tried or he or she tried to to look into me, but I tr- I could not get I just could not get that one. Uh-huh. From a distance, I noticed the the surviving one tried to push to wake up the dead wasp on the on the ground. But what my concern is because it's in my walkway towards my uh-huh. driveway, and it's been it's been attacking the honeybees and the bumblebees, and now it's attacking me. So I am concerned about it. What can I do? Well, you've you know you've you've gotten rid of one of them. Hopefully, the other will simply go away. There are many many different kinds of wasps. You know, ninety five percent of them are actually beneficial because they control caterpillars, and then you've got some of these others that are more aggressive. And you know, some of them kill spiders. Some of them, good guys, kill grasshoppers. They just go after a lot of different things. There's not a lot you can do. Uh, this type of wasp is normally a wasp that lives in the ground. It's not one that's going to have a paper nest. It's not one that's really going to have a colony. Uh, they're pretty much solitary wasps. And so having gotten rid of them, um, hopefully, you know, this other one will go away. Hopefully it was the female. It, chances are this was a male and a female wasp. And um, I, there's there's really not a real good repellent that I've ever found for them. They okay. don't like the smell of garlic. Now, it's one thing oh. you can do, and they don't really uh-huh. like the smell of cedar. So you could either get something like the cedar repel spray, or you could get one of the garlic sprays. There's one of them that's called yeah. garlic barrier. Another's called mosquito barrier. Spraying either of those products around will help repel them and keep them out of the area. But it's not like there's a whole colony of these things out there. It's not like there are dozens of them just waiting to come and cause a problem. You've taken care of at least 50% of the problem, so hopefully the other <laughs> half will go away. But, yeah. but garlic, and, yeah, garlic and cedar are probably your two best repellents for any flying insect, whether it's wasps or mosquitoes. Now you mentioned about the, it's like a dirt. What I've noticed after, you know, I kill that thing and then I move it away on the side. Yeah, I think this, like the thing that died is some kind of dirt yeah there was a dirt underneath his belly because i Uh turned it over took a picture of it i think they they like to burrow in in, uh, underneath the dirt right and if you ever find where they are burrowing you can just flood them out um, a lot of beneficial bees, uh, even things like some of our bumblebees, which they, they're curious. They will follow you around, but they're not coming to get you. There's something totally different though. They're a big black bee with some yellow on them, but, uh, and as a kid, I ran from them like mad, but then I figured out they're not really coming after me. They're just coming to see who I am and what I'm doing. Oh, so, okay. um, but it sounds like you. what you had was one of these, more aggressive wasps, and uh, you've done a good thing to get rid of them. But as a repellent, either cedar oil or garlic are probably going to be the best thing you can spray around. Don't overdo it, though, because you don't want to run off all your honeybees and all the good ones. Yeah, because I have so many honeybees, uh, visiting honeybees. I don't know where they're from, but I love them <laughs> because they get so fat. It's so hard for them to take off when their belly's full oh, of the, uh, that's so much honey. Fun. Yeah. Yeah. So, last question. When I sprayed, when I sprayed them yesterday, 
I had a lot of my of my mint, the leaves. Uh-huh. They're no longer good. Those leaves, right? They're no longer good. I would wash them very, very thoroughly. Now there are okay. some other sprays that are safe, but Raid and those things they use some pretty toxic things. So I would either wash thoroughly, or uh-huh. you know how mint grows. I would just go through and clip the top two inches off, and in uh, three or four days' time, you'll have new growth everywhere and have plenty of mint for other uses. Thank you. Hey, thank you so much. Now I feel better. Good, Julie. I sure thank you All for right. calling this morning. Oh, thank Have you. a great Bye-bye. weekend. Goodbye. All right. Uh, next up is John. Good morning, John. Morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Um, a few questions. <laughs> First of all, I have a peach tree. I bought three peach trees out of Phoenix, brought them in, planted them, and had planned to get some T-posts around them to keep the deer from being able to get to them. And, uh-huh. of course, didn't in time. And <laughs> they completely girdled two of them. And one of them uh, girdled about probably five-eighths of the bark off the tree. Uh-huh. Um, the tree has survived, had, you know, this is its second summer, so it had three peaches on it this year. Um, but if I take the my uh, wrap off of it now, not the wrap on the trunk, but of my mm-hmm. dyed cables. I got a, a water hose with a cable through it that I've been using to keep it pulled one direction because if I take that off, it wants to lean toward the side that the, the bark's on. Right. Um, is that thing going to make it or should I just give it up? You know, it's what you need to look for is look down at the area that was rubbed and see if you see, we call it callus tissue, it's kind of, you know, like if we get cut, we get a little scar tissue form as it heals. And if the, if the plant is strong and if the girdling doesn't totally surround the trunk, you will see a real smooth, in effect, new bark growing from the edges. And given time, it will totally, you know, cover over that wound and it will set the tree back. But, uh, you'll still get, you know, you still have a good tree. The problem is, when uh, what has happened right underneath the bark, there's this layer of tissue called phloem, spelled P-H-L-O-E-M, and this is a tissue that takes the sugars produced in the leaves and takes them down to the roots. Since the roots have no green, they can't make their own, they can't store their own energy. And when you have a tree that's girdled all the way around, you've totally cut off the nutrient supply to the roots of the tree. The tree sits there and looks good. It looks like everything is fine, but all of a sudden the roots exhaust their stored nutrient supply and the tree just folds up and dies overnight. Now, I've seen trees that were probably 80% girdled that have still survived and eventually regrown that bark and turned into nice trees. But if a tree is 100% girdled without help, it probably won't survive. And because the central tissue called the xylem, X-Y-L-E-M, that tissue is still intact and it's still sending the water from the roots up to the top, the tree looks great and you think everything's going well. And then all of a sudden the roots use up their stored material and just fold up and die and that can sometimes take a year so i never feel like a girdle tree is out of the woods until it has been about two years and if it survives two years then you know it's going to survive it's going to go ahead and come out of it the thing to do is keep on hand um 
something that you can use to cover the wound if that happens again. Uh, Howard Garrett on his website has a recipe for something they call tree goop. It's a mixture of rock phosphate and water and maybe some wood ash, maybe some diatomaceous earth. And you can literally slather this over the damaged area so that it doesn't dry out. My arbor's friend, David Vaughn, uh, he carries a roll of uh, roofing felt uh, in his truck, and because he gets called out, and, you know, when a tree's been hit by a car or girdled by a deer or the many different things or by a, by a dummy with a line trimmer that, you know, gets too close and whips all the bark off of something. And a lot of times, if you just wrap it up, if you maintain the humidity and uh, don't allow the wound to dry out, many times trees are able to heal themselves. But if you leave it open and exposed to the air, um, the tree will suffer. And like I say, if it's not girdled all the way around, it may very well survive and come out of it. But if it's totally girdled, um, then our typical hardwood trees don't survive. Now, palm trees are a whole different story. Palm trees have their xylem and phloem and a whole different arrangement, and you never have to worry about girdling a pecan tree. But a, a citrus tree, a fruit tree, an elm tree, an oak tree, shade trees of all sorts, uh, girdling is a very severe problem. Okay. Well, this one, the, I did not wrap it or anything, and it's been a year and a half probably. So... The it, the bark is actually kind of looks almost like it's scabbed down into yeah. the into the core of the tree, uh, which is pretty dry looking. So, you know, one side's okay, the other side's wide open and and looks aged. Pretty much, well, the wood looks kind of aged. But, on that, but you on the, you where the you goes. watch it, and you're going to John. You're going to see it's just the the new tissue is going to sort of gradually push its way over this we see this when we take a tree limb off if we take it off properly two three years down the road you never know there was a limb there to begin with so it'll take a while but uh, i suspect so it'll do like that totally like heal. the way they cover the end of a of a limb that you cut off and kind of grow yeah. back like that yes okay. sir i didn't realize that all right good um question number two i know i was listening last week and you and howard were talking about monoculture in the yard you know with uh, trying to get rid of the weeds and stuff and and i've you know, battled nuts edge forever but yeah. uh i'm the one who called four years ago and had potatoes with nuts edge running through the yep. potatoes yep and uh, uh i've moved my potatoes down to the interior of the garden where the nuts edge haven't made it to but yes, sir. it keeps creeping in and i keep fighting it so uh i was curious can I use dry molasses to uh, uh, put on it to battle it, or do does it need to be liquid molasses? You know, a lot of people use dry. I usually have used the liquid uh, because I just find it easier and cheaper. <laughs> but uh, the dry can be used, but remember, you're going to take a good deal of it. It's not the molasses itself that actually kills the nut sedge. It just stimulates so much good microbial activity. And nut sedge wants anaerobic soil. I mean, it loves to have lousy soil. It loves to have it so wet that there's no oxygen in the soil. Oil, and uh, the molasses just kind of works against that. It builds highly oxygenated soils and a tremendous amount of microbial activity, and the nut sedge just can't handle that as well. So I'm sure the dry would work well. If that's what you have, that's what I would use. Well, I have both, but I uh, have some dry that I really don't have a use for until 
Yeah. I get my fall leaves that I'm going to try to mix it with to help there them decompose go. more. But yeah. Um, all right. So how you? I know it. Well, you can't kill it in wet soil. How if I'm if my sprinkler comes on twice a week is that going to be keeping it too wet or or that's, if I'm watering my tomato plants and keeping them wet because I've got some that's grown in amongst my tomato plants. Well, it's not really hurting the tomatoes. I would that I would probably leave to intact that in the winter months when your tomatoes aren't there. Okay. Your grass should get by with once a week watering if you're watering thoroughly and deeply. I heard you um, say that to Howard last week too. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, really, if you put down an inch, inch and a half of water at a time, even St. Augustine, an inch of water a week is, or, or one watering a week with an inch to an inch and a half is normally plenty, and that also will help work against the nut sedge. You know, I'm not sure I, my sprinkler gives me that much. Uh, you know, my sprinkler system, I'll have to check and get a tuna can out there and see what it does. <laughs> But, well, and, uh, you know, if worse comes to worse and your controller doesn't allow you to program as much as you want, you can always replace the controller without replacing the whole sprinkler system. And uh, it's not a big job and it's not horribly expensive. So uh, a lot of these sprinkler systems that were put in years ago, best thing you can do for them is to, in effect, give them a tune-up with a new controller that gives you much more flexibility as how you set it to run. Probably exactly what I need. This thing probably fifty years old. Amazing. <laughs> it can probably stand a good update. Yes, sir. <laughs> okay. Um, shade cloth. Does it go on now? You, if I'm putting thirty percent shade over my garden. It's, I think it's probably a good idea. I think, uh, you know, late June, early July. What, you know, intense sun can create, in effect, is, is, is not just the action of the sun, but you can touch a plant leaf and you can tell if it's about to sunburn simply by the temperature of the leaf. Uh, a plant that is well adapted to bright light, uh, touching the leaf is going to feel cool even, you know, on a hot day. But if you reach out and you touch the surface of the leaf and it feels like it's just getting really hot to the touch, that leaf is about to sunburn. And a lot of times you can judge how well your plant, especially your slick leaf plants like your peppers, not so much on the tomatoes, but you can judge simply by feeling the leaves uh, as to whether you ought to apply a little bit of shade or not. Typically, um, I find it's late June, early July, but everybody's garden's different. And uh, 30% shade uh, is, is going to be a good idea for just about all of our summertime plants. Now, I would never put shade over okra. Okra needs the hottest, brightest, the most, the sun that we would think is worse is what okra loves. But your tomatoes right. and peppers and beans and eggplant and things like that, it's, it'll, be, it'll appreciate 30% shade anytime you want to get it out. Okay, I didn't know if I should wait still. Um, and last question. I've been spraying or putting uh, liquid fertilizer on my tomatoes. My, oh, by the way, with that foliar, I mean, with the shade thing, the reason I was asking, one of my my sweet 100s, I have two of them side by side, and they've actually grown into each other. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, <laughs> um, but it's eight feet tall, and... And I was out two days ago, and everything looked good. Went out last night, and the whole thing is yellowed up. I mean, it's not dead yellow, but it's it's much more you know much lighter than the one next to it. 
Yeah. I can't imagine that, one of them's son and one's yeah. not. But. It's, it's probably doesn't have anything to do with sun. You may have some early blight. You may have a water issue going. Um, I don't think that's really sun-related. It certainly would hurt you get your shade up over it, but I'd probably be drenching that plant with a corn water tea and uh, hitting it with some good liquid hestergrow or something like that. And uh, well, um, That's my next question on the hestergrow. Um, foliar spray, or do I just try to keep it off the plant? And if well, I do foliar spray, do I do that in the morning or the fol- evening? Foliar sprays are just fine, except that if the plant comes to rely on getting all of its nutrition through its leaves, it's going to have a crappy root system. It just a plant will only grow as much root as it needs to support itself. And if you're giving the plant everything it needs, you know, intravenously, so to speak, if you're feeding it strictly through the foliage, the plant will not have a good root system and it will be much more susceptible to drought damage and, you know, everything else that comes along. So I'm fine with an occasional foliar feeding, but I'm still going to want to do the majority, the bulk of my fertilizing is going to be as a drench over the roots rather than on the leaves because uh and i won't take the time to go into all of it but i've had discussions with them from usda and several others that they are finding that uh foliar feeding makes for a beautiful plant and a very weak root system which in texas that's not going to bode well when the when when july gets here so keep the majority of your spray uh as a drench on the roots if you want to do some foliar spraying yeah that's fine and i don't consider um and, and this is for fertilizers only. I still big believer in spraying with seaweed, molasses, and, you know, some things like that. Yeah. Um, well, I, I use a Siphon-X and a water breaker, you know, a, a sprinkler, a handheld sprinkler. And typically I will do the lower part of the plant. I don't yeah. usually do the top oh, of the plant. but Yeah, you're, you're you know, doing, doing it doing, right. You're doing it right, but don't worry if you get it over the top of the plant. Just keep most of it on the base. Okay, and and should I do that morning or evening? Do I want it to dry out early in the morning I before the hot sun comes? My, or? my experience doesn't make a lot of difference. Okay, I didn't know the sun had bothered the fertilizer on the plant. Well, the, the fertilizer the won't have anything to do with it, but every droplet of water can act like a little magnifying glass sure. and can actually burn. So uh, morning or evening, fine. Middle of the afternoon, no. I'm going to avoid getting no. the foliage okay. wet at that time of day. Okay, that's what I want to make sure. All right, great. That's all I had. Good questions. I sure appreciate the call. Thank you, sir. Thanks, you. Bye. Certainly. Bye. All right. Let's get back to gardening and back to the phone lines. And it's going to be James and Carolyn and Al. And uh, <laughs> again, once again, can't read my own writing, but we'll, we'll keep going there. Right now, it's James. Good morning, James. Morning, Bob. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing extremely well. It's just another beautiful day out there. Yes, sir. Watching the Purple Martins. Uh play and have fun this morning that's always interesting the lumberbird feeders right in the way though kind of hard to see <laughs> such a terrible problem to have if that's the worst thing we have to deal with i, I think it's be a pretty good day yes sir hey bob uh you, are you thinking about starting your first round of fall tomatoes absolutely Absolutely. I was looking at some of that seed in my refrigerator yesterday thinking that uh, 
it's you know i'm a big believer in getting those tomatoes in mid-july or very shortly after the middle part of july and i figure me it takes about five six weeks to make a good transplant the pros like you may make a transplant a little bit sooner but uh i sure think it's time to be getting the if you're going to start them from seed it's time to have it have it going yeah i'm looking at uh the uh the new moon this month is where I'm going to start the first round, and then probably every every ten days after that, another round. It yeah. was the plan. How are your tomatoes doing overall this spring? I've got the best plants I've had in years. How are yours doing? I got the best plants I've had in years. <laughs> it's just wonderful. I tell you, by indeterminance, I need to get a stepladder to pick them. And I, I mean that literally. My cages are six feet tall. I put two-foot extensions on the top of them. And uh, even my determinants are up six feet tall or higher. And uh, knock on wood, you know, I've got a little bit of yellowing foliage. But, boy, I've had the production from them. And uh, just beautiful plants, beautiful tomatoes, and uh, sure been a good year. I'd love to give myself credit, but I think uh, I think nature has helped us out a lot this year. Well, we've been making some salsa with just uh, salt and peppers and homegrown tomatoes and God, it is really good. You know that stuff from that stuff in the can from the store. You know you need to throw rocks at that, man. Those homegrown tomatoes are just ooh, yeah. <laughs> James, you're hilarious. That's but you know it's so true. We all talk about how just the flavor of the tomatoes is so much better on a homegrown tomato. But everything you do with the tomatoes, uh, making salsa and or, you know, those who uh, love to make their own spaghetti sauce with some of the Roma types, they're just no comparison to what you There's get uh, no in the grocery store. Bob. What's that? You, you can say that again. There is just no comparison. That, no. Those nasty old tomatoes that they make those commercial sauces out of, is that like uh, uh, combine harvested field uh, Romas or... I I have no idea. I suspect it is. But uh, like you say, once you've once you've done some with your own homegrown stuff, uh, you'll just it almost makes you want to build a greenhouse just so you can have your own tomatoes in the winter time. But if you do it right, you can put some of that salsa up at least and enjoy it through the cool season until you get your tomatoes up and growing again. That's the plan. Um, I got a big order of uh, seed coming from Johnny's. Uh, what I wanted to talk to you about is uh, I really like to to grow uh, an early girl in the mm-hmm. fall. Right. They put on and keep coming, and uh, they're, they're not a real big tomato, but they've got uh, a really good sweet and tart profile. Yeah, I agree. Uh, there's there's a new early girl. It's called the new girl. Oh, really? Okay. Johnny's has got the seed. Uh, it's just as tasty and yummy as the the early girl, except it's got a little bit more disease resistance, and the the tomatoes are a little bit bigger. I'm making so notes here. Gonna, I'll have to look into that. Yeah, new girl uh, get those started on the new moon in June, and uh, and celebrity, and those are the only two tomatoes I'm going to have for fall. Uh, at, because they work, and uh, I try to keep it simple. 
Yeah. Well, and I'm with you, and I, I grow for flavor. There are a lot of people love Tycoon because it gets so big and produces so much, but to me it just doesn't have the flavor. And uh, I'll tell you another one that I love, um, it, and it's a, it's a sweeter tomato as opposed to being tart, but, man, my lemon boys, I've had lemon boys, been picking those way over a pound apiece recently, and my plants are just loaded up, and they don't show any signs in slowing down. I'm still, the nights are cool enough, I'm still setting fruit on my big tomatoes, which is really kind of unusual once we get here halfway through June. Yeah, um I've got a whole bunch of green tomatoes on that one row. Uh, they'll be coming in, I don't know, week, 10 days, and uh, uh, smaller tomatoes up high. It, yeah. It's really a good year. Uh, well, we never know what the well, next one's going to be, so we'll just enjoy this one, that's for sure. Uh, one more question. Uh, I was putting the diatomaceous earth in the... Uh, the uh, dry molasses can to try to keep it from seizing up. And you were going to talk to Howard about that. Did did he have uh, uh, any uh, any suggestions on try- keeping the dried molasses from turning into a rock? He just you know said try to keep it away from the humidity, try to keep it sealed up as best you can, and uh, didn't really know. I'll have to talk to the folks. I'm I'm pretty close to the people that make the nature's creation products and uh i'll see if i can get them to share their secret because they've got the best dry molasses around as far as not clumping or caking and uh i'll next time i I actually visited with them earlier this week about some things and uh i'll see i'll see if they will share some of their secrets with us james well i opened up the can and uh stirred it around a little bit and it's still um it's still workable with, with the uh, diatomaceous earth in there. I don't know well, how long that lasts. So. That's good to know, and you'll certainly never harm anything putting diatomaceous earth out. And it's it's cheap. It's effective. It's uh, you know people you, they read all those warnings on the label, and I tell them you know those are basically just the CYE kind of stuff that uh, because it's a siliconized diatomaceous earth, it's so dangerous to breathe, and they somehow can't get that all sorted out. So they just put these big time warnings on all of them. But uh, DE is to me one of the safest and best things you can use for a lot of different purposes okay well uh keep up the good work with your uh, tomatoes there bob and uh i hope you have a, a a good crop this fall well i hope you do as well i'm glad you got through to james to us james you always you know where to find me but i have so many people that tell me they enjoy so much when you call in and share your wisdom with us so uh you get out and have a good weekend we'll talk again soon but don't dial right this second because we're going to talk a little more with Carolyn and then with Al and then Teresa and Fred. But we'll have an open line available for you shortly. And, uh, oh, it is a beautiful morning. Whether you're up in Fort Worth like Carolyn or like our previous caller in Oklahoma, it's going to be a warm afternoon. But, man, I hope you get out and take advantage of this, this beautiful morning air because it's not going to be around forever. Ah, Carolyn, let's go back to that conversation. Good morning again. Okay, let me finish with my uh, plants that I bought uh, yeah. before I'll get to the big problem. Uh, I had uh, I bought two celebrities. I have a probably I have I think six tomato plants because I don't have that large of a garden. Okay. And uh, so the two one of the, I plant them in, always two to a cage, uh-huh. and one of them is not a celebrity. <laughs> it is huge. 
it is it is shaped uh, uh, sort of like a ch- uh, Cherokee purple, where it's uh, not a smooth tomato. You know, it's kind of right. ruffled around where the stem is. It is over a half a pound or a half a pound. I've weighed them. I had the stem is so full, and and it, they fell on the ground because uh, I guess it couldn't hold it. And I don't have a clue what that tomato is. Um, took it to a friend who grows a lot of tomatoes, and we couldn't match it up with anything. But it's a huge tomato, and they haven't started turning, uh, turning, uh, you know, ripening yet. But the two that fell off are really gorgeous tomatoes. So I, I'm wondering if you had any idea. Yeah, put them huh? in the windowsill and see if they will ripen there. You know, when uh, tomatoes are wind pollinated rather than being insect pollinated, yes. so uh-huh. you have mm-hmm. a more high likelihood that they're going to become self pollinated. But still, I've talked to some folks that uh, produce seed commercially, and uh, they were saying they still really spread their there's plants out because you will still get some cross-pollination and what you have may indeed be something new it may not be any quote known variety there are a number of tomatoes that do make uh oh you know sort of an odd shape even brandywine does that sometime german johnson does that sometime um old what is it old stripey is another one and uh there's a another striped tomato that is really kind of green and yellow so that that kind of flat but uh deeply indented growth uh cherokee purple's not the only one that does that so a lot of the heirlooms do so just gonna kind of have to wait and see i'd like i say i put it in a sunny windowsill and see if they will ripen and uh Maybe we'll get a little better idea. Hopefully, they'll taste good, whatever they are. But you, you have to realize it could be something totally new. And uh, as a matter of fact, one of the tomatoes we usually grow, that happened with a friend. Um, his name is Jesse, and so we're calling that tomato Jesse's Delight. And it's one of the best tomatoes I grow in my garden. But uh, it's just a, it's just a one that sprung up in the middle of a bunch of others, and it uh, produces prolifically, grows well, and tastes great. So uh, maybe you've got something new. We'll see how it works. Well, I uh, see, but the two green ones that fell off, they're not ripening. I've had them in the windowsill, uh, but they, but the vine is still full of others. So uh, I I don't know whether I'd be able to save the seed, whether they've cross-pollinated or not with others. You know, I have no idea. So well, it'd be fun to try. What? be fun to try. It, and like it, you say, you're going to be starting more of your own seeds. So I'd plant a couple of those just to see. Okay. Well, my big problem is the eggplant this year. Usually the only thing I have trouble with on eggplant is those flea beetles. And I take DE and I dust them with DE. Well, right. I've got my... Uh, eggplant, uh, especially one of them or two of them, uh, are uh, they just wilt at the end of the day? It looks like somebody poured hot water on them. In the morning, they're perked up, but right. I don't see any flea beetles. The leaves just don't look right. They've got little uh, brown spots on them. And uh, anyway, I looked this morning before calling, and they're perked up again. They're getting plenty of water. However, I'm wondering if um, if the roots are too shallow because I checked yesterday and the roots were pretty much on the surface uh-huh. and a half of the eggplant was wilting and not the other half. Okay. 
And I would, uh, so I'm I would definitely put some mulch on the surface. I, I think it is a root, yeah, I think it's a root problem, whether it's just that mm-hmm. they don't have as good a root system because obviously they're drooping from the heat and not from lack of water. So I would probably step up my fertilizing. I think the mulch is going to be a real good idea. And uh, let's, you know, maybe use a little Super Thrive. Be sure and use a good liquid fertilizer. I think you just you just need to work on building a little stronger root system. I'm seeing a little bit of the same thing on my eggplant this year. But I just think the top just grew faster than the roots. I think as the weather warms and the soil warms, we should get beyond this. But your mulch, in the meantime, is going to be a big help. Well, that's what I did. I went to the compost pile and got a bunch of mulch, covered up those roots, and watered it. And I have been using the uh, I have been using the uh, uh, has to grow on it. So I guess I could use some Super Thrive also. Because I'm thinking that those roots just are drying out in the afternoon. And then, um, so I did. I got a, a, some of the mulch from uh, our compost, yeah, I guess. throw a little compost. garret juice as well. Water them water with some of that garret juice. That apple cider vinegar in there seems to have a real good effect. And, of course, you've got lots of other good things. It's not going to substitute for your fertilizer, but it's it's sometimes a really good tonic. Uh, to kick root development, uh, sort of take it to the next level. So uh, I make that well, part of my routine as well. Well, uh, so what about the little spots on the leaves? What I mean, they just don't look like healthy leaves, and you know, they just don't. Mm-hmm. The well, those spots. are those are little fungal spots. It's probably called something called circospora. It's not nearly as uh, bad as early blight on tomatoes or anthracnose on some. Uh, squash and things like that. It's just a little opportunistic leaf spotting fungus, like I say, probably a circospora of some sort. And as the plants get stronger, you'll have fewer of them on the new leaves. They're just, they're just off to a slow start this year. And because they're just not super strong, you're going to have a few other little issues show up. I think that's all on earth it is. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to, I've, I've been doing the fertilizing and I'll try the super thrive and I'll, Try to get the root system in better condition then. Okay. And uh, maybe right. a little garret juice and a strong dose of patience. It's always always good oh. to talk to you, Carolyn, and I know we'll, we'll okay. do it again soon. Okay. Oh, okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Certainly. All right. Let's move up to Al. Good morning, Al. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. I wanted to start by telling you that over quite a few years, I've learned that when I followed your advice, I get outstanding results. So thank you very much for all the great advice you've given. And Well, it's, it's my great pleasure. It's uh, just based on all the things I've done wrong. So if I can keep you from making my mistakes, you'll be a long way ahead. I have uh, just planted some yellow crookneck squash. Uh-huh. And I wanted to get the information on when and with what and how do I inject the stems to keep the squash borers away. I use the liquid BT, and um, and you know it's it's the same stuff. It's been sold under ten different names over the years, and I mix it pretty concentrated. I'll usually make up about a cup at a time, and I probably put maybe almost a one or two teaspoons of the concentrated BT to a cup of water. And then I just use, I use a syringe. I'm comfortable with syringes. I'm an old biologist by training. And 
Lord knows I've given my various animals plenty of shots over the years and a handful of people as well, so I don't mind handling a sharp needle. People who are not comfortable with that, you know, go to the store and get one of these things you use to, you know, squirt seasonings uh, deep into the meat and chickens and turkeys and things. But I'll use a syringe. I can't remember the gauge on the needle, but it's the kind of needle they use to uh, use penicillin uh, or, you know, ambipen or something like that, one of the thicker things. And right. the nice thing about your yellow squash, whether it's crook neck or straight neck, those stems are almost completely hollow. The zucchinis, the stems are a lot more solid. You sometimes have to inject more than one place. But uh, the, your, your yellows, uh, especially the crook necks, have mm-hmm. a hollow stem. So I let the stems get 12 to 18 inches long. I let them get up and started. And then I about four, four to six inches from where the stem comes out of the ground, that's where the borers usually start trying to get in and that's where i inject them and and like i say i'll take the syringe and just inject it's probably about five cc's i'll just squirt it um, into that one big area and for me that has stopped the squash vine borers 100 percent. do i need to do that more than once or just one time i just have done it one time and i've done very well with it that way okay well, they're just emerging. I just planted them, so yeah. um, I'll wait for them to get uh, up a little bit, and I will give it a shot. Anything That's else what... that could be done, or just is that just the only thing I need to worry about? Well, again, everybody is experimenting with different things, trying to keep the blasted vine borers away. I think the latest thing I'm hearing about, uh, some people are saying the human hair seems to be repellent to that moth that comes in and lays the eggs. But I've tried everything. I've, people have suggested bay leaves. I've tried that. Uh, I've tried some of the hair. I've tried, golly, I can't even remember all the different things that we've tried. But uh, injecting the stem has worked every time, and it's been far better than anything else I've done. Okay. Thanks, Bob. Really appreciate your help again. Well, I really appreciate the call this morning, Al. You get out and have a wonderful weekend. Thanks, Bob. You too. Thank you. Thank you, sir. And goodbye. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. All right, let's get back to gardening and let's get back to the phone lines. And uh, we're going to talk to, it's going to be Teresa and Fred and Robert and Chris. Ah, and Teresa starts us off. Good morning, Teresa. Good morning, sir. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm hoping Excellent. you can help me. I'll do my best. Um, well, I know you will. <laughs> I have a comedy of errors to talk to you about. <laughs> Sounds like my yeah, life. <laughs> it, it, it's a little embarrassing to come on after people like Carol and James, but I'm I'm a novice at this, so I'm learning as I go, and I'm learning by mistake. <laughs> um, we we built two raised beds out of cinder blocks. They're about uh, 12 feet by 5 feet planting area. Okay. In the first one, we put the, uh, behind our our shed, we had a pile of dirt that we would throw all of our compostable materials on for years Uh and years and years and years, and and we would turn it, and it it turned out to make pretty good garden soil. But it had a lot of volunteers come up in it. (laughs) And instead of transplanting or pulling them, we just said, hey, what the heck, just let those puppies grow. Well, that was not Uh a smart idea. (laughs) <laughs> so now I have Frankenstein's garden. Um, I got a mix and mash of over here. There's um, we planted some cucumbers, 
but I've got spaghetti squash and butternut squash coming up in between all of this. Uh-huh. Um, now, I, I figure it's starting to get a little late for these. It's, it's starting to get hotter. But the, the problem in this mess is there seems to be some sort of a fungal growth. The cucumber plant, and I've been researching, and I can't find a name for this. Mm-hmm. The cucumber plants have a cotton-like growth coming up on the blossoms. Yeah, I mean it, it's fuzzy. a form. It's related to powdery mildew, and everybody okay. I know is having it show up. Uh, cucumbers are have always been very susceptible to leaf spotting diseases, and I don't think I've ever seen a year as bad as this one is on different uh, different leaf foliar diseases. Some of them are producing. Some of them the plants have just given up. Um, I do recommend spraying with something like uh, liquid garlic. Now, don't spray it early in the morning because that's when the bees are active. But garlic is one of our best fungus preventers out there. And I would also be given a weekly douse of uh, the corn water tea, soaking whole ground cornmeal in water and then putting that on the foliage. But you're, you may be you know, thinking that you've got real problems, but everybody's fighting the same thing on cucumbers especially and on a lot of varieties of squash now i've been pretty well blessed this year and my squash are going strong i'm planting a new zucchini i've never grown before they simply call container zucchini but uh, my cucumbers are like everybody else's just just constantly fighting the fungus on them okay so you said spray them with liquid garlic i guess in the evening uh, yes, in the evening is the best time, and also, if you want to make a spray by soaking some whole ground cornmeal in water, like, I don't know, a fourth of a cup, maybe to a gallon of water, soak that overnight, and either drench them or spray that on. That's also a great fungus stopper. And should, can I do those simultaneously, or should I do one one day and one another? I You can do them the same day. I wouldn't mix them together in the same sprayer, but you can certainly do them on the same day. Okay, I don't want to wash one off with the other. No, um, that's not going to be an issue. And that's cornmeal. That's that's not the stuff in the pantry. That's the ground stuff that you get at the feed store. Well, the whole ground. If you buy at HEB, buy what they call stone ground. The one to avoid is what they call enriched because what they've done is taken and polished off like 12 essential nutrients and then put 10 of them back. I think that's what George Bush used to call fuzzy math. I still come out a few nutrients short, but um, uh, it, whether it's stone ground, whether it's called whole ground, it doesn't matter whether you get it from the grocery or the you know the health food store or from a good nursery. Okay, I can do that. Um, and then the liquid garlic, what's the recipe for that? Or do you buy that in a bottle? You can buy it in a bottle. It's the easiest thing. If not, just uh, blend up a few cloves of garlic and, you know, distribute it as best you can. It's hard to spray when you're just blended it up because you still get some things that will clog the sprayer. But what garlic does, garlic stimulates beneficial fungi. And as was explained to me by a professor of microbiology, she said there are only so many sites on a plant leaf that a fungus can get started. And if those sites are occupied by a beneficial fungus, even if it's microscopic, if those are occupied by a beneficial fungus, then there's no way that there's any room for the bad guys to get started. And that's how garlic works to protect your plants. All right, good to know. Um, problem with uh, some pests. I've got leaf miners going through my tomato leaves. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And I've got some ants that have invaded. Um, they're tiny. They're teeny, teeny, and they're getting up into the squash blossoms. I would what not do worry about either one. Um, the ants, you can dust a little diatomaceous earth around, and that should stop them. Leaf miners, their damage is really much more cosmetic than anything. There's not a good way to kill them. Now, generally, in an organic garden, you'll have less and less problems because there's some little wasp. And I once saw a, uh, I was once over at Epcot, Epcot. This has been years ago. And, of course, Disney does everything in the world with photography and all. And they had actually photographed this little wasp walking back and forth and back and forth on the surface of a leaf until it figured out exactly where the leaf miner was. And then it actually punctured the leaf, laid an egg into the leaf miner's body, which, in effect, destroyed it and, you know, gave its own larval state a place to grow. So, generally speaking, leaf miners are not a serious issue. If I have more than I really want to put up with, I simply will pull those leaves off and uh, dispose of those leaves so that I'm knocking out the next generation of them. But leaf miners, that's cosmetic only and not really anything to worry about. Yeah, I, I pulled, I've, I've got more than I want. Um, yeah. Apparently they like this, this little plot. So I did yeah. that yesterday. I pulled the leaves off of that and um, I'll check it again today. Well, um, and I, you know, don't put those in the compost pile. Put those in the burn no, I pile. No, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not, yeah, let's not do that. But um, it's, you know, it's it, it's been a learning experience for you. I, you know, the only yeah. mistakes are the things that you don't learn from. And in nature, do you think Mother Nature plants nice, even rows of anything? Uh-uh, it simply doesn't happen. <laughs> um, it's, you know, and where you have the, the issue you're going to have is with things like butternut squash and acorn squash and those things. Those are long season squashes that take 100 days or longer to produce. So you're still a ways away from getting mature squash, whereas your summer squash is a short, short season squash and can produce in 45 days or less. So uh, it's just going to be a matter of keeping up with what's what and being patient with it. <laughs> like I say, it's uh, Mother Nature is the best teacher and uh, you're, you're learning from your mistakes, but it doesn't sound to me like you've got anything serious going on. You just what uh, I love the little sign that says the Garden of Weeden, W-E-E-D-I-N. Yes, so you've sir. got the Garden of Weeden as opposed to the Garden of Eden this year. Well, it, I guess I, 25 years ago, I used to be a pretty avid gardener. And it's amazing uh-huh. the things you forget when you don't do it routinely. <laughs> and what so I'm, I'm relearning about? things. I'm sorry? <laughs> I was joking. I was saying, what were we talking about? Speaking oh. <laughs> of forgetting things, no, <laughs> and, exactly. Uh, no, you, you. Um, let me tell you, you'll relearn them more quickly than you learn them the first time around. So, uh, uh, it's fun. That's that's what gardening's all about. And uh, as they well, say, you get true. tomatoes. Yep. So on on the cucumbers, are we getting to the end of that season? No, plant some more. Plant some more. Plant if some more. Uh, if if your early ones are fading out, I just replanted beans and squash for another go round. My cucumbers are still doing okay, but I'll probably plant another round of cucumbers here in another two three weeks. Well, these are looking pretty sad. That fungus got a pretty good hold on them. Yeah. Um, and I've I've removed leaves and leaves and leaves that have died off and and yeah. pulled them out. And um, I'm I'm halfway between ripping them out and starting over and trying to see if the squash, not the squash, but the cucumbers that are on that are going to make or not. 
I give it a little time, but if you've got room, maybe start some transplants in pots. You can, you can't, excuse me, you can't start cucumbers in pots and grow them that way for two or three weeks. And by that time, you'll have a better idea of how things are going to do with the existing plants. Okay. On the, uh, the second bed, the first bed got all the, uh, compost pile. So that, uh huh. I haven't added any amendments to that except the, uh, mulch that's on top of it had some, uh, um, fertilizer in it. But the other bed, uh, we put some peat moss in there and that's where all the tomatoes are. Mm-hmm. Um, but I haven't amended it with anything else. The soil out here is, we're in the southwest part of Bear County. Sure. It's very clay-like. What else should I add to that soil? Well, I would stay away from peat moss. Peat moss is very oh, antimicrobial, I? and um, oh. I, I am not a fan of peat moss. A good peat moss substitute besides compost is what they call core, C-O-I-R. It's a coconut fiber product that does does all the good things that peat moss does, and it does not do the bad things, which is, uh, you know, preventing a lot of your beneficial bacterial and fungal life in the soil. So uh, adding some core is a fine thing to do. I love adding a little bit of green sand. I will add sometimes a little bit of cornmeal. Um, I'll add many times a little bit of lava sand. Dry molasses is a very, very good thing to add to the soil. And I'm experimenting. There, there's some different things that uh, there's a, a product out there called Azomite, A-Z-O-M-I-T-E, and uh, I've started using that a good deal this year. And everything's growing so well, I can't really sort out whether the Azomite has really contributed to it or not. But uh, I've got the best garden I've had in years, and I certainly am going to go on adding some azomite to the soil. It has like almost a hundred different micronutrients in there, and um, but you know, dry molasses, cornmeal. Uh, maybe you can always add a little bit of lava sand. You can add a bit of green sand. Uh, just the sky's the limit as to what all you want to put in there. I think it's more important what you stay away from. And uh, okay. I would stay away from peat moss. I would stay away from compost other than what you make yourself if you're not real sure of the source because they're still well-meaning friends who would love to give you some manures that are loaded up with herbicides. So be very careful yeah. about what you get from a friend. Yeah, I'm I'm careful about that. On Good. the tomato plant, um, yes. they're setting flowers. I've got lots of flowers, only a little fruit, and I'm afraid maybe it's getting too hot for the fruit to set. Well, I with the nights like they've been this week, I the season is stretching out. It was 62 degrees at my house this morning, 54 yesterday yeah. morning. So nice and cool I, this morning. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I think you're going to get plenty of fruit set. Well, I came out and I tapped everybody just to give them a little push. (laughs) (laughs) Always a good idea. Shake them up a little bit and get that pollen flying around. Okay, one last question, and then I'll let somebody else in. Um, Watering. Now, in the old days, I remember sticking my thumb or my finger down in the dirt down to a first or second knuckle, and if it wasn't damp, I went ahead and watered and left it otherwise. Give me a better idea. Is that still a good plan? That's still a good plan. Just remember when you water to water thoroughly. I always tell people, and I kind of shake them first to be sure they're listening and say there is no such thing as too much water, but there is too often. When you water, water very, 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 very thoroughly, but then do exactly what you're doing, Teresa, and that is stick your finger down in, let it get dry, a couple of knuckles deep, and then just absolutely flood it again, and uh, 
that's it's as simple as that you'll never go wrong if you water under that plan well i've got one little tomato plant that was a volunteer that came up in the middle of my herb garden and i just mm-hmm. let him go and Absolutely. that one set two fruit that had blossom in rot okay and so you had a little epsom salts in there yeah, Epsom salts okay, will stop them. blossom and rot completely. You're rebalancing the calcium and magnesium in the soil with Epsom salts, and it's always a good idea, especially where you're planting tomatoes. Okay, so should I go ahead and treat that other bed? Absolutely. Epsom salts are okay. cheap. Just sprinkle it around. Just there's not a ratio or a, an amount. I, I just I I do it. Tomatoes are the main place that I use Epsom salts, and I probably put about one and a half handfuls around each plant. On your little volunteer plant, if you want to get faster results, dissolve about two tablespoons of Epsom salts to a gallon of water and use that to water the plant, and that should totally stop any problems, any future problems. We will do that today. <laughs> you get out and enjoy. You <laughs> it's always good to talk to you. I appreciate your help. It's always a pleasure. All right, let's get back to gardening here. It's going to be Fred and Robert and Chris, and then a second Robert, and Fred is up first. Good morning, Fred. Good morning, Bob. How are you doing this morning? I'm great, thank you. How about yourself? Beautiful morning. Great. Yeah, beautiful it is. You're right, sir. Hey, I got a quick question for you. Uh, looks like I have some uh, those cut ends, and they're uh-huh. getting a hold of my jalapenos not touching the tomatoes or anything else um would be the best way of getting rid of them they're just going in there you know as you know the evening they're stripping the leaves off and uh but i can't find the trail to you know to where they're going i know there's a way to do that and then try to treat the mound where they're going in at but i cannot find the trail yeah ah how big is your jalapeno patch so to speak Oh, it's small. I, I got a very small garden. I mean, I'm talking. I've got like six plants. So, okay. Um, you know, um, you know, it, it's it, the the cut ants are really tough to stop. Now, on a tree or something like that, we simply wrap a piece of uh, foil or plastic wrap around the trunk, and then we put this real sticky stuff called uh, Tanglefoot on it, and the ants can't walk across it. Um, I have to tell you, you could try dusting some diatomaceous earth around, but if if I were fighting the cut ants, one thing I would think about doing is simply taking, you know, four two-by-fours, making a little rectangle around the area where you have your jalapenos, since that's what they're going after, and using Tanglefoot or a similar substance, um, I mean, you probably use axle grease, just, you know, I've got a little grease gun that I use on my tractor and things like that, but you could use something like the tangle foot and just in effect smear a band of it you know all the way around it's not really going to be affected that much by rain or watering you don't want to get a lot of dirt on it but you've almost got to put some sort of barrier up there that will stop the ants because they're just uh, there's no spray I know of you can put out that repels them, and hopefully long term you will be able to find their trail you'll be able to go back to their mound and uh, and eliminate them but um that uh, that's probably the best suggestion i can give you is low tech and it's cheap but uh make a band wide enough you know maybe an inch or so wide that the ants can't just throw one of their buddies on it and go across it but uh creating a a barrier like that's probably going to work better than anything i can think of yeah i I did put that de down after they got 
two of my six plants and I, I put some around, you know, I just kind of like little ring around each plant and I haven't seen anything happen since then. I don't know if I got rid of them or they just, you know, they moved on, but, um, you know, it's, it's that. And then my rose bushes, they tend to get to, but that's the only thing they really affect. Yeah. Um, they don't like the tomatoes, I guess. Uh, it's not their favorite. They will get after some of the trees, and interestingly enough, out in the country, they go after that smilax, that really thorny green vine that comes up, and they can eat all of that that they want. Uh, the problem with the DE is once it gets wet, uh, it's just not as effective unless or until it really dries out thoroughly again. But if DE's working, just watch your watering. Try not to try not to wet your DE down, and if that's stopping them, that's certainly the cheapest and easiest thing. You you can do but beyond that you know i just i'd be creating some sort of little barrier yeah you talked about the see i'm on a raised bed uh-huh. and so it's really about 18 inches by six foot uh-huh. you know is my is my size of my raised bed but i have five of those yeah and uh you know but i like your idea about just making a little rectangle or and then just sticking yeah. it around the plant and putting some grease on it that that seems like a yeah, you know. Well, that, the that could be the, the best product I know of out there is, is called Tanglefoot. It comes like in like an old cottage cheese container, and just use uh-huh. an obstacle stick or a tongue depressor, and it's going to hold up a lot longer. And it's uh, um, it's sticky. In fact, it would remind you of the stuff they put in glue traps. But uh, right. um, it's uh, it it lasts for quite some time, and uh, cut ants are they're one of the biggest pests in the garden because they're just hard to unless or until you can find the mound and eliminate them. Uh, they're just uh, they can do a lot of damage in a short period of time. I like to say on something that has a single trunk, like a tree, we can just we wrap a piece of uh, foil or saran wrap around it, and then just smear the tangle foot on that or the grease or whatever else. But I don't want to give up any. Any of my jalapenos to the cut ants. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. All right, Bob. Well, I appreciate it, and I'll uh, I'll be talking to you soon. I'll look forward to it. I sure do. Thank All you. Right. Appreciate it, Fred. Thank you. Bye. All right. Uh, let's talk next to Robert. Good morning, Robert. Hey. Good morning. How are you, Bob? I'm good, sir. How about yourself today? Doing, doing good, doing good. Hey, Excellent. listen. Uh, uh, just a couple of questions. I remember hearing you say that spinosad's your go-to, but I don't remember if, if it was spinosad or spinosad soap. And um, spinosad soap is what I have largely switched to. I just somehow, there's a synergistic effect with uh, the spinosad soap. It's a combination of insecticidal soap, which works well by itself, and spinosad, which works well by itself. Uh, but the two of them together are just, you know, they're the end of stink bugs, the end of aphids, they're the end of uh, uh, most of the pests that I have. Now, keep it away from the bees because spinosad is toxic to bees. But uh, spinosad soap is for a safe product that works against virtually every insect pest in the garden. Uh, I, I really like it. It's, it's available as a concentrate now. It's uh, always been available as a ready-to-use, that little RTU they call it in the little hand sprayer but if you use very much of it certainly cheaper to mix it yourself so what what's the uh what is it an ounce to a gallon or something like that or what what's your... i'd have to go read the label i'm still uh buying the it all ready to spray and uh so i'd, I'd have to go read the label on it but it's it's going to be somewhere around that oh okay so does it uh affect the good insects 
also? I would take care not to spray it directly on them. I don't think that uh, if they just encounter it, I don't think it's going to bother them. Uh, but I, I wouldn't spray it directly on them or probably would. Okay. So I sprayed, because I, I have fire ants in the garden, and I sprayed uh, the soap first. Yep. And then I came back the next day later, and then we uh, I sprayed in nematodes. Will that be okay, or is that? Oh yeah, I do? yeah. And the nematodes are a little slower to work, but they will eventually wipe them out. I've gotten to where I'm using more mound drench than I am uh, anything else on the fire ants, and uh, I think it's rosemary oil that's in there. I use the Nature's Creation brand, and uh, I just love the fact that you know I put them out and they're dead two hours later. Sometimes I have to make a second a second application, but fire ants—that's what I'm going to to get rid of. Oh, okay. Well. That's just it. I I can't find where the mound is. I just yeah. see trails of them. Well, and you everything. may you may want to get some. Come and get it. That's a spinosad product, but it's on a bait that is specific to fire ants and harvester ants. I don't like killing the harvester ants because they're a very important part of the food chain for lizards and horned toads. But uh, uh, spinosad with the attractant, uh, sold as come and get it, and that way you don't have to know where the mound is and you just sprinkle it around and it's not going to hurt any of your beneficials that way. Okay, and those harvester ants you talk about, are those those red ants? No, yeah, they're those big red ants. Oh, okay, so those are good ants? Well... They're good in that they are very important uh, as a food source for some other things. Uh, they they can get to the point that they may do a little bit of damage, but uh, and I wouldn't want them out right in my vegetable garden. But out in the fields, I leave them alone because, uh, like I say, they they're an important part of the food chain for a lot of creatures that I like. I see. Okay. Well, you 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 help me out and answer the questions. How is it? Thank you so much. You have have a great weekend. Thank you, Robert. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Back to the phone lines. It's going to be Chris and Robert, and Chris is up first. Good morning, Chris. Good morning, everybody. Okay, number one, since I only have a minute and a half. Uh, last week, someone called about from Corpus about using lime and garlic to keep away flies. Uh-huh. You remember that? And Well, it was actually lime away. and cloves. Lime and cloves. Oh, but cloves. I okay, that. I've tried garlic, and apparently that's working because... My flies are no longer going around the dog food and the cat food that sit outside and all yeah. that. So that apparently is working, too. I'll try to close. Number two, I uh, nut sedge, which is also in with my p- potato plants. Mm-hmm. I dump it in. The nut sedge starting to die, but so does apparently my uh, potatoes. Do they? Will the uh, molasses in there? Stimulate the potatoes to work faster or die off or what? Well, it's just the heat is going to be the end of your okay. potatoes, and molasses yeah, okay, stimulates that's... the yeah the bacteria, which if they get it all bruised or anything, um, you know, it could damage the potatoes. But your potatoes are dying back just like your onions are, just because just because of the okay, summer sun. That's normal. Yeah, that's that's normal. Those are the two I'll get. Go to the next guy. I have three more, but I'll call back later, maybe. I'll look forward to talking to you, Chris. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, everybody. You're welcome. Yeah, you know, when I'm in the studio, I can put you on hold and talk to you off the air doing the commercial breaks or news, but can't do that when I'm broadcasting here. Chris is doing a fantastic job back at the studios, but uh, doesn't work quite the same. Let's go to Robert. Good morning, Robert. 
All right, make it brief as I can. Uh, I like to attract hummingbirds. I have a hummingbird feeder. Uh, I also have well water. So, um, anyways, hummingbirds don't seem to like my water. All I'm doing is just putting sugar in it, which I've done for years at this other place I lived at. Uh huh. Hummingbirds don't seem to like uh, uh, the 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 water from the well. I guess is there something I can change? Well, not to use the wrong word there, but uh, that's unusual. But you know, well water. It, maybe it's telling you you ought to get your water tested because, uh, you know, working with the groundwater district, we find that the levels of different things in the water tend to go up and down according to the water in the aquifers. And it could be sulfur. It could be fluoride. There are a lot of different things that might not really agree with the hummingbirds. You know, a gallon of, uh, of purified spring water at the grocery store costs you like 69 cents or something like that. Um, I would, I think about just, uh, giving it a try by, you know, spend five bucks and you've probably got a, a month long supply of, uh, of water that's, uh, been quote purified. It's, it's filtered is what it is, but I, I just get, uh, what is it? Crystal Geyser, I think is a brand that I buy because sometimes my water gets a little off taste and I just simply go to some store bought water and, uh, you know, a gallon of water goes a long way when it comes to feeding the, filling the hummingbird feeders. I give that a try and see if that's what's going on. Hmm, if they don't like it, maybe I shouldn't be drinking it. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I say it might be good to spend 20 bucks and uh, get a water test. because uh, uh, And it's interesting. We do have 60 seconds here to talk. But um, talking, I, I d- deal with some really good well drillers. And one of them was telling me that when our aquifers really drop, as they do in drought, sometimes some of the minerals down in that aquifer begin to oxidize. And when we get rain and the aquifer comes back up again, there may be a change in the water quality and there may be a change in some of the minerals in there. So um, it, you, it, you could be onto something there. And uh, I doubt if it's really toxic, but... Uh, uh, it would never hurt to check, and, uh, you know, it may just be that your hummingbirds are a little bit picky on the taste, and uh, uh, buying it at the grocery store is not a bad idea at all. Yeah, I do filter my water. It does, it's full of sulfur, so I have yeah. a little aerator, a Venturi, that, that, that does that in the holding tank well, up here at Lake Hills and we'll th- Medina Lake. Yeah, well, let me know how it works out. Try some Ozarka or something like that. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. But as always, don't dial right this second because that phone line is occupied by a good friend and a great gardener, the guy we call the Dirt Doctor, Mr. Howard Garrett. Good morning, Howard. Good morning, Bob and everybody. It's another beautiful morning down here. I hope you're same up in the Metroplex. Yeah, it's really pretty, nice and cool and crisp. It's uh, very strange. I thought we were going to have the hot weather moving right back in, but uh, I guess the uh, tropical storms down there changed its mind, changed the weather's mind. Uh, it's it's hard to figure, and we're getting warm in the afternoons, but boy, the humidity's been down, and uh, I would just can't complain about the weather right now. It's 54 degrees in my house yesterday morning, 62 when I left early this morning, and uh that just feels pretty darn good for the middle of June. I know it's going to change. I know July is going to get here in August, but every day it does this. I just go out in the garden and smile. Yeah, it's uh, very, very enjoyable. I've got to do a bunch of gardening myself today. I'll let the 
the weeds in a couple of areas get ahead of me. The one I keep fighting, and boy, if anybody ever comes up with a uh, solution for it, it's going to make a lot of money, is the Carolina snail seed. That yeah. that vine was at our property at the office, uh, already there all over the place when we bought bought it. And it's it's really interesting that the woody part of that vine can spread uh, so widely. It pops up in the lawn. I mean, it's yeah. coming there. It comes up just literally everywhere. And uh, I used to say nice things about that vine because <laughs> it had such pretty <laughs> fruit on it. But that pretty fruit is what the birds spread and makes it become such a problem. Well, it's it. Once you've got it, I, I people say, "How do I get rid of this?" And I tell them, "Move," because I don't think you're ever going to get rid of it once it gets it gets its uh, foot in the ground, so to speak. But that one and uh, the bindweed, they're just two or three of them that uh, that just are continuing irritation. I've got uh, oh golly, I've got two or three spots that I just pull, pull, pull. But uh, maybe maybe it's just uh, my destined to be my exercise program so to speak because it sure is persistent well i guess theoretically all of those plants poison ivy would be in the same category if you kept the top uh trimmed off you know get the, the bulk of it taken down and then as soon as it starts to peak out either trim it off or spot spray it with an organic herbicide and it would finally use up all its stored energy underground and, and give up the ghost. I do have the uh, Pure Grow people working on an idea that started with the fact that we needed to give some people some advice on how to get rid of privet that was uh, spreading. Mm-hmm. One of the commercial projects and one of the residential projects that I consult on both have that as the biggest invasive plant on the, on the place. Right. But coming up with something that would systemically kill a woody weed without contaminating you know the soil and everything is is something that I bet we can come up with but it ain't there yet yeah and it's it's going to be challenging but there I can't help but believe there's a, a way to do it I've thought about you know taking a little tube of something and actually just you know putting down over a cut stem or something like that but uh it's it, it always you know, it, it always seems that the worst stuff comes up right next to something that you do not want to harm, and that's what just makes it so difficult because we just can't tell. And you know, whether it's uh, you, you and I are going to always stay with the natural stuff, but even the chemical stuff, there's just no way that you can teach it to know what you want it. And I can't say good or bad; it's whether we want it or not. Because every plant's probably okay somewhere, like your privet, like the Japanese ligustrum, like uh, oh, a lot of the things that are on the invasive species list. Uh, the lithrum, which to me is such a pretty little aquatic plant with the beautiful flowers boy up north apparently just clogs your drainage ditches and it's banned up there i like the old-fashioned water hyacinth i think they're a beautiful thing with those little kind of orchid purple flowers and i think they're just interesting in a water feature but boy let them get out in nature they're they're big troublemakers so uh it's just one of those ongoing challenges some of those things that's exactly (laughs) right yeah yeah. Well, anyway, well, so- I, one, of the, one of the things I guess that uh, you could do, in fact, I know you could, I've been impressed with how well the uh, saltpeter, the mm-hmm. potassium nitrate kills. Uh, uh, this big uh, 
flowering peach that I took down because it had become too crowded there and everything, and I was wanted to use some of the wood for my wood sculpture and all. But uh-huh. I treated it with the uh, saltpeter, and it it uh, killed it completely, and it didn't. It never even put out one single basal sprout trying to wow. regrow. So I guess if the woody weeds were big enough to be able to uh-huh. drill at least one hole in it and putting the put the saltpeter in there, that probably would be a way to completely kill at least those stems. So you, you actually drilled, as they suggest, in trying to rot a stem out, you drill the hole down in and then put the dry saltpeter down into the into that hole, and it worked. Yeah, and I didn't put carpet over it or anything. I put some shredded <laughs> native tree trimmings over it, and then we had uh-huh. all those, uh, that series of real heavy rains we had, and it washed it all away. And and I put more, I couldn't see the white salt. Uh, Peter in the in the hole, so I put more in there. And every time it got wet, the salt Peter just kind of uh, went away. And what I assumed was happening was it was it was soaking into the wood. But it the whole stump is showing uh, you know fungus, uh, fly, you know the uh, fl- flowering parts of fungus of rot, and it's going downhill pretty pretty uh, quickly. And it never tried to put out one single sprout so it seems to work more thoroughly quickly than anything i've ever tried well if i get any time in the garden i'm sure going to try that on some big hackberries uh that i you know cut off and they re-sprout and uh, yeah give it a whirl yeah Uh, what what name do you buy it under are you actually able to find saltpeter or potassium nitrate or you buy it as stump remover because it's it's gotten harder to get uh, over the years, since uh, some people are worried about its combustible properties, shall we say? But uh, what what name are you buying it under? Well, the, the organic stores weren't carrying it because it was they thought it was uh, contaminated with some chemical. But I looked into it, and I don't think th- that the one called Stump Remover. There's a Bonide product, and I think uh-huh. there's a Fertilone product too. It comes in a little uh, uh, brown plastic thing that has a nozzle where you can put it into a, a pretty small hole and squeeze really? it. It's a real fine white powder. Yeah, and yeah. The only thing on the on the label is potassium nitrate, so I think it's uh, it's a clean product. I did research on the MSM, uh, MSDS sheet, and that's what it seems to uh, be. And it was in the big stores. I couldn't I couldn't find it in any of the independent places so i've been talking about it more in my columns and everything i ought to do it again soon so the independent uh, people start putting it in stock well that's one of those yeah it's it's one of those things that while we can't call it organic it is natural so to speak and it is non-toxic i mean the the chemical guys still use it as fertilizer in fact uh, two or three of the big bedding plant growers they they mix it, make it part of their uh, their water soluble in fertilizer that they inject into their system. So, uh, while it's not the fertilizer you and I would choose, it's certainly safe from the standpoint that it's not going to affect anything around of it. If a little bit of it washes off and gets into the soil, it's not going to be a problem. Well, it's going to be interesting to see if it affects any of the plants growing around it. I don't see any evidence of that, and I think what's happening is that it's totally being being uh, absorbed uh-huh. uh, into the stump, yeah. and so uh, that's why it's working so well. So anyway, give it a try and see if you see the Absolutely. same uh, results that yeah. I did. 
Yeah, and as I understand, the mechanism is, you know, of course, wood fiber is basically cellulose, and it it converts it fairly quickly to what they call nitrocellulose, which is spongy and flammable and certainly not going to grow. So I will most definitely be uh, be giving that a try in the very near future. Uh, one thing I wanted to share for you with you that I got from a, a gardener last week was she was, you know, we, we get a lot of calls about flies and sometimes more than others, the, the nuisance flies that you get around trying to have a picnic outside or, you know, in some areas. And she was saying that she takes limes, uh, slices them in half, and sticks some cloves down into the limes and sets those around. Says they're slightly, you know, they're somewhat decorative. It's kind of an interesting little table decoration. And said that the flies absolutely do not come around. I haven't tried it yet, but, boy, if that turns out to be a simple fly-repelling solution, I thought that was certainly worth knowing about she said any limes seem to work whether you use the little key limes or whether you use your big old persian limes so i don't know if it's the limes or if it's the cloves or if it's a combination but i thought that was a, a fun idea for repelling flies yeah i'll try that too right away that's a cool uh, idea if that works that combination like cloves just can, continues to be an interesting uh <laughs> thing for us organic uh, gardeners yeah. maybe just the cloves but Mm-hmm. Uh, giving them a place to uh, to stay. So the clo- we'll, we'll cloves try and that cinnamon. as well. Yeah, cloves and cinnamon just turned mm-hmm. out to be yeah. super, yeah. super. And uh, something else that somebody, I, I just love it, and I'm sure you have the same thing your listeners share back with you, what things they have learned. But I had another listener was telling me about something they call, they got at a feed store, they call a mosquito eradicator, and it's like a mosquito trap. But it uh, it works in that there's yeast in it. And, of course, yeast is generating carbon dioxide. And the carbon dioxide is apparently one thing that the mosquitoes key on. And it draws them into this. I'm not sure exactly what kills the mosquito or what, what traps them inside there. But uh, I just, you know, we've, we've been just beyond busy. And so I haven't gotten out to look for this. But uh, he was saying it seems to be all natural and nothing chemical about it. But uh, in his yard, at least, uh, he felt like it was really cutting down on his mosquito problem. I was buying some dog food the other day in uh, Rooster Hardware. And I think they had that product in the shelf. It comes in a oh. box that's about a foot long. Uh, I might get that and try that, too. That sounds good. Yeah, let's give it a whirl. I I ran into something uh, recently I wanted to share with everybody that was related to one of my latest uh, Dallas Morning News columns. I wrote three in a a, a little series of the things people have the hardest time accepting in the garden, you know, wasps (laughs) and spiders and and snakes. And the the spider one, I got an interesting... A uh, note from uh, Victor Peck, friend of mine at the Dallas Zoo, and he said uh-huh. uh, he said that uh, one thing that uh, I might want to add to it, which I have added, uh, giving him credit for it. He said that, but except for the uh, opalions or opalines, which are the harvestman and da- daddy long legs, uh-huh. all spiders are venomous, and uh-huh. I, I had. I had put in there that the only ones that were venomous and dangerous were black widow and, and the brown recluse. But he said, "What the what's really the uh, deal there is that all spiders are venomous except for those two, but that most of the spiders that we consider beneficials and, and don't want to hurt 
have fangs that are so short they can't penetrate our skin. Hmm. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? I, it makes sense, but uh, I, I, we've added that to the website, so people might be afraid of them more now, but uh, they're they're not a problem simply because they physically can't get the venom in us. Well, you know, it would be interesting, and this would be a great question I'd love for you to ask him, about the different types of venoms because you know in in snakes we've got both neurotoxins and we've got hematoxins uh, yep. you know one attacks the nerves and the other attacks the blood and in some cases like the mojave rattlesnake it apparently has a combination neurotoxin and hematoxin but it would be interesting to know how many different venom types there are in the spiders because obviously Things like uh, the brown recluse, Loxosceles, has something that attacks tissues and causes, you know, a, a tissue breakdown, where yep. something like, I think, the black widows are mainly a neurotoxin, and mm-hmm. uh, it would be interesting to know how many different kinds of of toxins there are. That'd be a that'd be a fascinating question to ask. But I've never heard. I know some spiders have big fangs, like tarantulas, because they'll they'll rear up on their back legs and show you what they've got to come after you with if you uh, corner them or irritate them. I, I think tarantulas are fascinating. I don't pick them up and play with them like some of my crazy friends do, but uh, uh, they'll sure show you what what spider fangs look like. Yeah, that's an interesting one because you would think their fangs would certainly be uh, big enough to uh, pierce your skin, but mm-hmm. everybody kind of agrees that they're not dangerous uh, at all. So, yeah, let's let's look into it a little bit more and and see. But the starting uh, uh, little bit of information there is kind of is kind of neat because I I had just assumed they weren't yeah. uh, venomous venomous at all, but they have to. Uh, I guess they they have to inject the venom in their prey before they start to uh, uh, devour mm-hmm. whatever it is that they've attacked. And it may be something like, you know, with with a lot of the snakes, especially the hemotoxins, it's kind of a pre-digestion thing. Supposedly the venom mm-hmm. starts, and it starts the digestive process, starts actually breaking down whatever the prey, mouse, or whatever it is, uh, it starts the digestion before the snake even manages to consume it. So I love things like that, when you learn something and at the same time it raises some other questions that, that would be fascinating to get answers to. Well, I'm glad you got a friend that's uh, a good Spider-Man because they're, they're just lots of interesting things. I, I'm still fascinated by the spider's ability to make different kinds of webbing, to make a sticky web and a non-sticky web, and then you watch them when you have an insect actually fly in and get trapped in the web, how they can race out and just wrap this thing up, just make a cocoon out of web, it just in literally in, in seconds. I, I love watching, especially the big old garden spiders. They're just, I don't know, they're, they're a fun thing to watch. It really is, and the little jumping spiders are cool too. You know, they're called <laughs> kind of uh, collectively black jumping spiders, but some of them are brown. They're all kind of the same thing, but they jump so fast it's just yeah. like they were shot out of a little gun. <laughs> and uh, they scare people, I think, because they can move so fast like that. But boy, they're just nothing but beneficial. I've got several pretty good, uh, real good uh, photographs of them devouring caterpillars and moths and various kinds of things. Boy, speaking of such things, and, and the one other spider that I would mention, I think is 
uh, interesting are the ones whose eyes glow in the dark when you go out at night with a flashlight and just mm-hmm. see hundreds of little eyes down on the ground. But uh, I, I was privileged to see something in my vegetable garden this week, and I'm not sure what the proper name is, but those things, I've always called them robber flies. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, they're beneficial. Yeah, but I was out there, and I've had just a handful of stink bugs show up on my tomatoes, and this one stink bug took off to get away from me. It flew up, and that robber fly came off. It was it was up on one of the rebars that I use anchor in the cages in place. It was off of there. had captured that flying stink bug and was back over landed again so fast that the eye could barely track it. But uh, that was, oh, that was just so much fun to watch. And we had a similar thing a couple of years ago at the nursery. One of the caterpillars had kind of come down out of the trees on their little silken webs. They come down, and one of them was coming down, and a big old yellow jacket flew across and grabbed it out of midair and took off with it. And uh, those are the things you just wish you could somehow capture with a video cam because they're so interesting but uh i'd not actually seen that robber fly in action but it it was so fast it's just like one instant the stink bug was there and the next it was gone nature is fun to watch for sure anything new on the grasshopper scene we continue to get more and more questions and we tell them about the surround we tell them about the no low but uh, are you are people having problems in north texas or have you come across anything new or different well i keep getting a report from this one fellow that's got some acreage that uses nolo bait and beneficial nematodes every Uh year and he does not have a problem with them uh he he keeps reporting to me every uh every year so it seems to work, and then people tell me that they've had pretty good luck with, uh, or real good luck with the spinosad if they have them actually feeding on plants and they can spray uh-huh. so that they actually hit the grasshoppers, it, that it works. So those, those three things seem to work better than anything I've ever run into. Well, and, and I love, really, really do like that new uh, spinosad soap combination, the insecticidal soap along with mm-hmm. the spinosad. That would work really well, I think. And I suspect, We're having you know, reports. That, not, go ahead. We're having reports of big uh, uh, spider webs on plants. Are y'all getting any of those down in your part of the state down there? Where they cover that yet. The webs cover the entire plant? No, have not heard any of that yet. I've heard uh, from a couple of people, and uh, they're real thick uh, webs. We had, I don't know, it was about five or six years ago, I guess, there was a uh-huh. huge outbreak of them. They covered just big areas of planting, even trees, and mm-hmm. there were spiders. I mean, there wasn't anything dangerous about them other than uh-huh. they, it looked bad, but it may be starting to pop up again, so you may kind of keep an eye out for that. I will certainly keep an eye out and an ear out. And this, this is a fun thing. The conversations that you and I have are, of course, very, very interesting to me, but I, I'll get calls all this next week and say, hey, I heard you and Howard talking about this or that, and they either want a follow-up question or they want to, you know, give us their experience related to some of those topics. And uh, it just, just makes what's always fun even more fun. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, great. You know, hopefully we'll... Hopefully we'll we'll hear from folks. Well, anything else uh, um, 
going on up there that's unusual or different? What did you, did your snake? Has your snake called them run? I we've been so busy at the nursery, which is a good thing. But golly, I haven't sat down in front of a computer to look at DirtDoctor.com or anything else this week. It's just been insanely busy, which is good. But has your snake called them run yet? And what kind of experience? Yeah, it's the last brand, and it's already on the. Uh, uh, on the uh, website, and we, yeah, my, the main thing that I get from that, especially from some of the guys that I know, the one of them said, "Well, I learned everything I need to know about snakes," and the other guy's response was, "The only thing I want to learn is how to kill them all." Yeah, so, which is such so. <laughs> most bad. people are pretty narrow-minded about snakes. <laughs> Well, it it has it has a biblical history. It goes an awful long way back that they've yeah. somehow been uh, portrayed as bad. But then I, what I love to tell them when they tell me about killing snakes and uh, oh, I just hate those rattlesnakes. And I say, well, you know, there's snakes out there that eat rattlesnakes, so you better be real careful. You might be harming your friends out there and. Uh, even the rattlesnakes, I I relocated. <laughs> Wendy's standing here giving me a horrified look. <laughs> you know, how can there be a good snake out there? I had an aunt once that said every snake was dangerous because she was liable to hurt herself trying to get away from it. But that's uh, right. It's uh, but I you know there snakes just do an awful lot of good out in the garden, and uh, some people will never convince of that. But you know, hopefully the kids and some people just getting into it, maybe maybe we can teach them the right way from the beginning well the ironic thing is that uh, the snake people that i communicate with tell me that that, that there's a fact and that is mo- more people are hurt by snakes by trying to kill them than anything <laughs> i can believe that i so, can believe you that. know i told that i ended my column by with the uh, Senate saying, uh, be calm and walk slowly away is the best thing to do if you're afraid of a snake or think it's a dangerous uh, dangerous snake. We've had some people, I've talked to some uh, folks here uh, that said, told me that they had seen cottonmouth water moccasins in the White Rock Creek area and around White Rock Lake and everything, and I made the comment that they're not here. And they argued that they saw it. I think what they see is they see those big old uh, water snakes. There's a couple yeah. of different species of water snakes that look a little bit like a uh, uh, a cottonmouth water moccasin. But I, the far, I heard. Well, in fact, the pro at the, at Lakewood Country Club's daughter got bitten by a cottonmouth water moccasin in. Um, the big lake uh, over east of the, the Dallas-Fort Worth area, mm-hmm. water skiing. She was water skiing. She was in the water uh-huh. and got bitten by a water moccasin. In, and that was one of the things that I ran into when I was doing research on, on uh, for this column, is that water moccasins are one of the few snakes that have the ability, or maybe the only snake that has the ability to bite underwater. Uh-huh. So you have to think about that, but which is pretty scary. As much as I used to water ski in a uh, in a lake that was full of water moccasins over in Pittsburgh, yeah. Texas, when I was a kid. <laughs> well, I know my grandfather's little farm down outside of Maybank, where we go down fishing and shooting and things on the weekend. We occasionally saw water moccasin, but even where and Louisiana certainly has a huge number of them, and the the worst I've I've heard of over there because they sometimes will actually get up into the vegetation around the water, and I've no more than one friend that had one 
fall out of a tree and into the boat with them, and that would not be that would not be a real pleasant experience. But I still I'd get find your attention, it. yeah, yeah. But I would be willing to bet you and and natrix is the most common genus of water snakes that i know of and i'll bet you they outwater the water moccasins 20 or 50 to 1 your chances of seeing a and i I think about this at my grandfather's farm we probably would see 50 or more harmless water snakes for every true moccasin we saw and they're all foul-tempered and they're all stinky snakes so I, they're not anything anybody that i really want to deal with but uh the incidence of uh of the actual poisonous ones at least in around here and i think around dallas per se very 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 low i'd be very surprised to see a poisonous one yeah the poisonous ones in general are going to be shorter and stockier more muscular and then yeah. the the good guys are longer and slicker and uh, skinnier and that sort of thing, like the rough green snake, which is very smooth. I don't know how it got the name rough green snake. Well, there actually and, is. There's a rough green snake and a smooth green snake. They're two different species out there. But um, well, one of the I may need to change that in my column as well because <laughs> the only one that I've ever run into it's just called you know it's a smooth one and it's called yeah. a rough green snake. It's oh, kind of interesting. And of course, there's that big old indigo snake. Talking, you mentioned eating rattlesnakes. Oh, yeah. They'll eat a rattlesnake in a minute. I was, you know, it, back in my days when I hunted, uh, was at a ranch in South Texas, and came across one of those. This was on a little road going through a gate, and that snake literally spanned the road. I know it was over eight feet long and heavy bodied. They're just beautiful snakes, but uh, they really are pretty. One other thing you might you might be interested in putting in your column, um, of course, is uh, anybody that's taking their their dogs out in an area where you may have rattlesnakes, copperheads, or cottonmouths, they they can get that vaccine that uh, will. It doesn't mean the vet won't the dog won't have to go to the vet, but it means that they will get their they will survive long enough to the, get to the veterinary. And Dr. Kirby says it's like having a vial of antivenom already in the dog. And uh, the first first year, you get two shots. I want to say they're six weeks apart, and uh, then it's an annual booster. He said people that hunt their dogs a lot in the fall, he'll sometimes give a second booster. But the same one that protects the dogs from rattlesnakes will protect them against cottonmouths if people are concerned about, you know, I, my dogs go everywhere with me, but people that are walking their dogs in an area where they might encounter a poisonous snake, and Dr. Kirby said he's probably vaccinated 10,000 dogs against this, uh, the uh, rattlesnake with the rattlesnake venom and said he's never yet seen a bad reaction. And here in San Antonio, we've got rattlesnakes in some of the... Yeah, some of the city parks. We've got some big city parks around, and there have been dogs bitten out there. So unless you've got a little dog that never leaves your condo, uh, for me it's just a little life insurance for my puppy dogs, and they, they get their booster every spring, and uh, it sure makes me feel better about uh, being out in the country with them. Yeah, no kidding. Well, we're probably giving people, a lot of people out there, the heebie-jeebies just uh, listening <laughs> about the snakes. snakes. So I guess we better move on. <laughs> Oh, snakes and spiders both. Uh, yeah, I don't mind snakes. I'm not a big I like looking at spiders, and I don't mind handling snakes. I don't do much with the poisonous ones. But uh, spiders are one thing that I kind of give a wide berth to. I love them and uh, would never harm one, but I don't want one for a pet. <laughs> but anyway, well, we wish you, uh, as always, a wonderful week up there. Hope you 
hope you get a chance to take care of at least a few of those weeds in the garden and uh um you know i I hope yours is doing as as well as mine i had i put two foot extensions on top of my six foot tomato cages and they're already up and out the top of those so uh like malcolm used to have to take a step ladder out to harvest his okra i'm gonna have to do that on my especially on my cherry tomatoes if they keep on growing the way they're growing but it's it's been a great garden year i hope yours has been as good as mine yeah, it's been fun. I got started late, as I told you, but it's, it's doing good, and uh, just having enough time to uh, keep it halfway under control is my problem. I'm going to try to work on it some today. Well, I hope everybody's getting back to normal life with this uh, virus deal. We're uh, kind of moving quickly in the right direction here, so it seems to be uh, moving the right right way now. Hopefully it'll keep it up. One more thing I'll mention since uh, I would forget before next week, but anybody that has a limited space, I'm growing a new zucchini this year that they simply call container zucchini, and it makes a very, well, compared to other zucchini, it makes a compact plant. It's probably, oh, three feet across, but it doesn't vine, and absolutely delicious, and I'm picking a huge amount of squash from it. And uh, so it might be some people. I'll, I'll certainly be planting again, and I'll uh, I'll see if I can get you some seeds to try because I know your garden is huge and you like squash. So we'll get you some to try. And as always, it's called container zucchini. Yeah, it's just sold as I think it's either Renee's or Botanical Interest. We only sell organic seeds, and I can't remember which one it is. But uh, uh, it is it has sure been a champion of my garden this year. All right, good. I'll look for it. We still have our two-for-one deal going on the uh, class. We've had a real big response to that where you buy one uh, of our online classes that I teach, and uh, you can identify a friend to receive another one for uh, for nothing. So That's a great thing, and people people need to get their kids involved in this. So many people are homeschooling now. What a wonderful part of the homeschool curriculum that would be. So, uh you keep up the good work. Give the dogs a pet for me. Give those ladies in your life a hug. And uh, we'll look forward to next Saturday, Howard. Same back at you. We'll see you next week. All right. So many calls, so little time. Remember, we do this again tomorrow morning from 8 until 11, followed by Dr. Kirby's show. So uh, if you couldn't get through today, I sure hope you'll call me tomorrow. We're going to talk to Paula and Clint and William to finish the show up. Paula's up first. Good morning, Paula. Good morning. Thanks for good taking morning. my call. Thanks for I calling. have two cool, I have two questions. One is I have webworm in my pecan trees, and of course it's okay. like twenty feet high. And how and what do I need to use to to, to take care of that? Well, it's going to be hard to take care of them once they are out and hatched. You need to make, make a note on your calendar and probably go ahead and do this anyway. But there is a little beneficial non-stinging wasp called a trichogramma. They come on a little card. The little card is like three-quarters of an inch wide and about four inches long. And each one has several thousand little developing wasp larvae. You simply hang this out on the tree. These little non-stinging wasps that are maybe sixteenth of an inch long, they go around and parasitize the, parasitize the eggs of those caterpillars, and they will totally prevent them. If you put them out in May, you'll just never see a webworm. The ones you have, um, 
are they're going to be hard to kill but i would sure think about putting out some more trichogramma so you don't get more and more through the summer if there's any way to break that web open long bamboo pole or i know one guy used his paintball gun or whatever to bust holes in the webs your your paper wasp your yellow jackets and your red and black wasps they will actually fly in grab the caterpillars and they actually use them as food but there's really no safe spray i guess you could use bt but i just hate to spray anything 20 feet up in the air but in the future put out some little trick of grandma wasp and you'll never see a webworm again oh okay okay you get, that you get the little that cards question. at a good nursery and under okay. under 10 bucks like seven bucks or something or other and one card's enough to protect a giant tree Oh, wow. Okay. And my second question is, I have two crepe myrtle trees that are like, um, they've been planted so many years ago. From My dad planted them. And they're like 30 feet high, but they're, they've not blooming this year. And they, they, they just go straight up. And, you know, it's not like a, you know, like I see so many that are rounded off and pretty and green yeah. and got the yeah. blooms on it. These are just, so unattractive and i said what can i do with them? well it's you know i would always check the base to be sure that you can see the root flare the truth is 30 years ago crepe myrtles weren't nearly as good as they are these days they've been especially out of uh, georgia they have done uh-huh. some hybridization and also up in oklahoma carl quickham uh, up there the newer crepe myrtles bloom earlier and earlier and i suspect your big old plants that you know date back 30 or 40 years they will bloom and they'll probably bloom right at the same time they have but the newer varieties are blooming so much earlier it just makes some Mm -hmm. of the others seem like oh gee why aren't they blooming but you go look at your calendar they usually start blooming in july whereas these other ones start blooming in may so be patient with them um fertilize will increase the flowering but uh, i don't think it's that yours are blooming late i think it's just that so many of the new ones are blooming so much earlier well, should I have them trimmed back, cut back, or anything? Or I, that's up to tall? you. If uh, if they're in full hot all day sun, trimming them back will make them bushier. But if they're out uh-huh. where they're partially shaded by big trees and things, they're always going to grow tall, reaching up for that light. Yeah. Well, they they're pretty in the sun, but they've just never been trimmed back at all. And so they've just gone straight up, and well, I just don't that's, think that's they're very your choice. Uh, the tree yeah. doesn't, or the plant doesn't really care. Uh, you're just pruning them to make them conform to a shape you want. Doesn't make them healthier, okay. and doesn't make them bloom better. Okay, okay. Well, thank you very much. You're sure welcome, Paula. Thank you. Thank Enjoy you. Uh huh. Uh huh. Bye.